0: Hello, Avril Danchak here. Welcome to Teaching and Learning Consultation Skills, Module 12, Managing Uncertainty in the Consultation, taking a deep dive into all aspects of uncertainty so that clinicians can manage it better and in less stressful ways. The preceding podcasts examined the analysing quadrant, dysfunctional ways out, and the much more effective skills that provide functional ways through uncertainty. So how does the clinical setting affect the analysing quadrant and what are the best ways to teach about uncertainty when an individual clinician and patient are working towards a diagnosis? All clinical decision making, including diagnostic thinking, is strongly influenced by context. The differential diagnoses that are to be considered will be different in an emergency department, a nursing home, or a routine follow-up clinic. Can the settings we work in be set up to help avoid what you do and you don't know what to do moments in the analysing quadrant? What methods of teaching will help people to learn to handle uncertainty more confidently in this quadrant? So I'm going to think about and to discuss how clinical settings assist this and the assessment and teaching methods for uncertainty in the analysing quadrant. So, can clinical settings help in the management of uncertainty in the analysing quadrant? Developing a diagnosis is often an iterative process, with test results casting light on what may need to be done next. Things kind of go round and round in a spiral, getting closer to the accurate diagnosis. How does the clinical setting help or hinder this? Diagnoses are more likely to be accurate if the setting permits and actually encourages personal follow-up and supports overall continuity of care, including the assessment of test results or clinic letters that may elucidate the problem. Continuity of care is very popular with patients and helps to build effective clinician-patient relationships, but it's much more than that. There is considerable evidence to show that promoting continuity of care actually affects overall mortality, and to some extent this must include greater accuracy of assessment. The availability of appropriate investigations, especially in generalist settings, can assist the management of uncertainty only if learners and juniors are coached in the appropriate use of diagnostic networks, which is covered in more detail in the networking quadrant. Safety netting works best with continuity of care and appointment systems can help to promote this, for example by permitting clinicians to book their own follow-up appointments with the patient. Where safety netting involves more than one service, for example out-of-hours care, then organisations must ensure that they have robust methods for transmitting relevant information between providers to inform subsequent decision making. This is likely to become even more important in the future as services change their configurations. Other elements of the workplace can also help to mitigate those what do you do when you don't know what to do situations. When they're designing instrument panels in cars or aircraft, designers consider how they can arrange things to promote appropriate situational judgments, which includes, for example, warning lights, the arrangement of information, and so on. In complex settings like accident and emergency or primary care, where there will be many competing priorities at one time, clinicians can be encouraged to develop a dashboard approach also to develop their situation in judgment, and this will help to facilitate prompt diagnosis especially in acute care. Questions need to be asked, who is waiting? Do we have enough information to prioritise? What early warning systems are in place to pick up problems earlier? And how do we make sure that the signal to noise ratio is appropriate so that there are enough warnings to highlight problems, but not so many that people start to ignore them? Helping juniors and learners to develop systematic approaches to difficult situations which include prioritising and delegating to others appropriately, will help many what you do and you don't know what to do moments. And delegation will be further discussed in the team working quadrant. Acute care has some automated systems for this, and GP computer systems can highlight available appointments, who is in the waiting area, available staff and other information. Looking at the tasks for the day with a supervisor's care and help, can help people to plan how they will assess urgency, importance, priorities and sequencing of work. Suffice to say that organised settings, with appropriate time allocations, are more likely to yield accurate diagnoses. The task of sort of sweeping the environment for impending problems may need to be shared or delegated of course. Modern medical practice is very complex. There are many algorithms, guidelines and protocols that can help in the analysing quadrant, the WELL score for a DVT being one such example. Such guidance should be freely available in clinical settings whether via the internet, mobile phone applications or information held in departments. Induction and training should address the availability and appropriate use of such aids and senior clinicians can model using them for reference. So what about teaching methods for uncertainty in the analysing quadrant? Many issues in the analysing quadrant will come to light when the adverse effects of dysfunctional ways out become apparent and these include delays in diagnosis, new information being ignored or failure to appreciate complex or multiple diagnoses. Perhaps also a failure to appreciate unexpected diagnoses. Trainers and supervisors need to identify the ways out and clarify what makes them dysfunctional. Otherwise, learners who find them easier may continue to use dysfunctional ways out, rather than working to achieve proper functional ways through uncertainty. Developing cognitive forcing functions in systems helps to avoid this. One example could include always checking all bones for fractures after major trauma even when the first fracture or two or three have been identified and this forcing strategy will help to avoid error. Using computer systems to prevent prescriptions of drugs that interact or that the patient is allergic to is another example of a cognitive forcing function that nudges clinicians to stop and think so that they can do the right thing. Some difficulties in the analysing quadrant arise when the clinician is inexperienced or when the situation is complicated or untypical. Supervision must be reliably available and skilled. All clinicians, especially those in training, need opportunities to discuss diagnosis with more experienced colleagues and to share their diagnostic difficulties. This is also true of experienced clinicians because they're likely to be responsible for more difficult diagnostic challenges. Multidisciplinary team meetings and regular opportunities to discuss diagnoses are the key to effectiveness and continuing learning in this quadrant. Which raises the question, are experts uncertain less often than novices? Actually, all clinicians of all levels of experience recognise the what-do-you-do-and-you-don't-know-what-to-do moment, although expert practitioners may have different thresholds for their sense of difficulty. What makes for expertise here is the ability to step aside from fixed modes of thinking and examine alternatives, to change tack if the information does not support the proposed diagnosis, to recognise if a diagnosis doesn't fit. Less expert thinkers can find it hard to change direction, It requires effort and may involve exchanging a comfortable, although wrong, place for an exposed and uncomfortable uncertainty. Clinicians need to provide psychological, cognitive and practical support to each other in these uncertain situations. A change of tack may be resisted for other reasons too. Perhaps a more senior colleague has made a particular diagnosis which becomes accepted without review. Or perhaps the clinician doesn't know how to generate some new ideas or fears picking a diagnosis that they will not know how to handle. This latter issue can be particularly true when the issues at stake are mental health problems or social problems which many clinicians feel disempowered to handle and they need to learn skills to deal with these kinds of problems in their setting. Of course there may be time pressure to act and alternative diagnoses May be more expensive to the health system because the costs of investigations are considerable and clinicians do have a responsibility to manage resources wisely. Changing tack and thinking again may mean that some possible tests carry hazards to patients. All diagnostic tests have a cost to patients well-being and time and some of course are potentially lethal. People do sometimes die from angiography for example. Educators need to discuss all these issues with their learners in the context of accurate diagnosis and senior staff need to model being open to feedback and being challenged to explain their own thought processes. Diagnostic methods can and should be formally taught and assessed. Trainers and supervisors can encourage clinical ownership of an individual patient's care by encouraging continuity, feedback and follow-up. This will help to speed up learning as people get direct experience of the things they did well and things that did not go so well. Using random case analysis and problem case analysis can highlight diagnostic reasoning skills and allow review of the history, the test results and referral outcomes. This is achieved when learners are asked to articulate and explain their thinking methods, in other words their clinical reasoning, to articulate how they came to their judgments, and to receive feedback from seniors about their diagnostic processes. Reflection on action afterwards in case-based discussions, case reviews and learning logs in e-portfolios can focus on whether or not the clinical reasoning and diagnostic outcomes were appropriate. When clinical information does not support the proposed diagnosis of a junior or trainee, they will benefit from challenges to their thinking. Provided that they also have adequate support to think through the alternatives. Asking the deeper question about how a situation has come about will facilitate improved situational judgment and encourage flexible, reflective thought. Medical educators need to be familiar with the concepts and thinking strategies outlined in the analysing quadrant. Metacognition. The process by which one steps back from the immediate anchoring situation to reflect on the thinking process should include a number of steps. For example, reminding oneself of the limitations of memory. Can I remember exactly what the criteria are for a particular diagnosis? Do I need to look it up? Checking the wider clinical perspective is important, not just the immediate presenting complaint. What doesn't fit? What else could this be? How could this relate to what's going on with other conditions the patient may have? The other approach, which I've also mentioned, cognitive forcing strategies, means specifically checking for known pitfalls or problems, even if they're not immediately apparent. These strategies are usually addressed to processes. For example, having found one fracture, keep on searching for the next one. Learners should rehearse these issues regularly in discussions with their supervisors, To ensure that they are thinking both widely and deeply about the clinical situations they face. Learners should be encouraged to make the most of any opportunity to see, diagnose and check the outcome of patients under their care. To reduce errors, all clinicians need to be asking themselves, how do I know it's this specific diagnosis and what else could it be? They should be mindful of how to exclude the rare but serious problem as well as including the most likely. Asking the deeper question about how the current problem arose, how it fits in with other information about the patient's condition, and whether or not a diagnosis makes sense in the overall context will also help for accuracy. In group teaching and study release settings, educators can explore what you do when you don't know what to do. Creating opportunities to work through diagnostic pathways in a variety of clinical contexts will help learners relate them to theories of diagnostic thinking. Understanding biases and metacognition will be more readily achieved with regular case review and analysis. Helping learners to think through carefully how and whether red flag signs can contribute to ruling in or ruling out can help more flexible thinking to develop. Trainers and supervisors should also explicitly address the question of biases and uncertainties. Symptoms and signs of different disease states overlap and mimic each other. Diagnostic tests are not perfect and their limitations need to be discussed. Training and discussion with colleagues also needs to cover the thorny question of when a diagnosis is good enough rather than perfect. Thinking about the worst case scenario is important and can help direct progress down diagnostic algorithms. However, many important diagnoses will be excluded simply by a test of time or by a test of treatment. It isn't necessary to do immediate MRI scans on every swelling or carry out tests for temporal arteritis for every patient with a headache. The anxiety, which is understandable in inexperienced clinicians, that they may miss something, or that something bad will happen if they don't act, needs to be explicitly explored and they need to relate this to the realism of clinical practice. Teaching and modelling effective safety netting strategies can ensure that if things do not go to plan, there is a robust arrangement in place for an iterative approach to diagnosis. For example, if symptoms are not settling as expected, this should prompt a review information can be reviewed and revisited in the light of changing or evolving symptoms. The usefulness and importance of holding strategies should be particularly emphasized in generalist settings such as primary care. Learners should be supported in appropriate watchful waiting while also being challenged to justify their choice of strategy. Uncertainty can be understood as a normal experience for clinicians which should be embraced as interesting and a trigger to deeper thought. Donald Shern sums it up when he says, Because of troubling, interesting phenomena, a clinician expresses uncertainty, takes the time to reflect and allows himself to be vulnerable. Then he restructures the problem. This is the key to the art of dealing with situations of uncertainty, instability, uniqueness and conflict. And I think there are two key factors here. The time to reflect, which allows you time to be vulnerable. Being vulnerable then in turn enables you to be open to restructuring the problem and thinking about it in a different way. Thank you for listening to TALK 12 on Managing Uncertainty and Consultations. Make sure to get all the episodes by subscribing to the TALK Talks podcast on Podbean or your other podcast provider. All the podcasts and the other teaching and learning consultation skills materials are available at consultationskills.com. Our book, Mapping Uncertainty in Medicine, What Do You Do When You Don't Know What To Do, by myself, Avril Danchak, Alison Lee, and Geraldine Murphy, is available online and through all good bookshops.